Hello, welcome to Under the Skin. Coming up, my interview with Lawrence Scott, author of The Four-Dimensional Human and Picnic, Lightning. We'll be talking about the nature of reality, both virtual, physical and psychological, and how these realms intersect and inform us, and what particularly about this time we're living in is difficult and challenging. Thank you for your lovely comments on last week's podcast with the happy pair. Here are some nice things that people have said. Josie Fletcher, Russell Brand, this is hilarious. I've woken up my friends in the middle of the night laughing. So now we're all listening. That's what you could be doing. Laughing at a podcast adjacent to a sleeping friend, dragging them into your joy. Drag them into your joy. Scandihus London. Yes, loved it. Thank you. It's not an easy path to run a business from the heart and mindfully. However, it is possible and it's so inspiring to hear of other entrepreneurs managing to do it too. So lots of positivity. People received that. I chatted again to Stephen from The Happy Pair. They're real lovely fellas. Give them a follow. Eat their grub. Do what you got to do. Now, me and Lawrence Scott had a, a wonderful conversation. I became interested in Lawrence Scott because someone, my mate Gareth, actually bought me Picnic, comma, Lightning, his book. And I was fascinated by the way he grappled with the grief he felt about losing his parents and how that challenged his understanding of reality and his through his relationships with them. Um, before we kick off, Mentors is out now. How to help and be helped. Uh, get your copy, russellbrand.com. Check out Rebirth on Netflix and uh, do what you want. Thanks. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that's, route. Yes, that's, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? Welcome to Russell Brand. Under the Skin. Thanks for coming to do this podcast, Lawrence. Um, we're going to talk to you, Lawrence Scott. I'm saying your name in case I've not said mm. it in an introduction, which I will have done. Sure. Like when I do, when I reverse engineer an intro, mm. I won't just say a man called Lawrence. <laughs> not and assume that everyone will know. Picnic, comma, lightning. I'll be him again. <laughs> but inundated. Really. No, no, not another podcast of Lawrence. We talked before about your book which I'm re I got in touch with you because I'm reading your book and I wanted to talk to you about it so I hope it doesn't sound derisory when I repeat my claim of earlier that whilst I'm reading and enjoying this book if someone said what's that book about I'd sort of there'd be a lot of um in and ah in from me so will you give us your best account of what this book's about okay I think what this book is about and it's just sort of coming to me now maybe maybe a month a uh, year after finishing it I think I was trying to grapple with this idea of for one thing we're talking about reality all the time in the last year and beyond you know Trump's been a big part of that with the whole fake news thing but in general I noticed that in our culture we were talking about reality as a conscious topic and its opposite such as fantasy so when you think of the politics and just take Brexit for an example on the left and the right both sides of the argument were calling the other sides fantasists. You know, what you want is a fantasy. This will never happen. And at the same time, our technologies um, that we're developing are all referencing reality. So there's augmented reality, virtual reality. So reality is on our minds. But at the same time, these felt like years in which our grasp on reality was becoming a bit more tenuous than before. 
Um, and I think if the book could, I mean, the book is about all sorts of things, but if it could be boiled down to one sort of thesis, I wanted to think about what happens when our private realities, you know, our inner worlds, our memories, our thoughts, the weird sort of monologue in our heads is broken down so that it becomes part of public reality. And I think that's what's happening in the digital revolution, that social media is encouraging this sort of breakdown in the boundaries between a private reality and a public reality. And, and I'm, I was interested in exploring what is the fallout of that. What are clear examples of the um, exposure and textualization, to use a phrase you use in your book, of private realities that we can all understand? Is it social media, Instagram? or? Yeah, I mean, I mean, social media, Instagram is enough to be getting on with for now, I think. It's, you know, the whole business model of it is coaxing us all the time to make our, like the private moments of our lives, the minutiae. So this sort of public event, and it's sort of shared and sort of disseminated online, but not only a public event, a commercializable event, a commodifiable event. So um, the way in which the business model of social media has gone, it means that our private interactions are driving traffic and data um, generation for third parties who are profiting on it. So essentially social life, our private lives between friends is now being um, filtered through this interface which is profiting from it and making it public. Yeah, that's extraordinary. I suppose because I'm a person that has, in a more conventional or typical sense, a public persona anyway, I'm aware that my relationship with social media involves that transaction. And even prior to that, because I've been f famous, as it were, for like 10 or 12 years or something, I remember at the beginning that while I was doing very traditional forms of entertainment e.g. stand-up comedy that I was talking about things that were very explicit and apparently transparent but I remember feeling quite distant from that information so I have necessarily become somewhat I think adept at parceling off bits of information that m might previously have been termed private for consumption but i wonder if how much of that is specific to me accepting that i have a persona and in a way because fame is just an exaggeration because all of us are subject to gossip whether or not yeah. we're famous all of us have a persona yeah. whether or not we're famous so yeah well i was that's why i'm really interested in talking to you because it is a really good example you bring up about sort of the idea of celebrity and that it feels like how people are interacting online now have sort of the some of the format of celebrity maybe they're sort of you know addressing 200 people of their followers but it's it is very much sort of a press release sort of relationship but with none of the trappings or financial rewards or really much of the glamour of fame so i think people now and you're seeing more and more there's endless sort of studies about younger people feeling the anxiety and depression of social media use which seems familiar to me of how would we be talking about a burnt out celebrity 20 years before this you know so i think there is always a public persona and a private persona but i think um now it's being the private the the borders between the two are becoming so blurred because there's a strange intimacy if you take an instagram as an example there's a strange intimacy to you know taking a picture of yourself in your bathroom and saying this is me here and it may not feel that you're addressing an audience of millions, but if that photograph goes viral, then you potentially are. So when you were uh, in the early days of fame, you could sort of calibrate to some extent, you could sort of anticipate the impact that certain things you would do would have. You, you know, it might be in a tabloid or it might be, you know, the audience in a show. But now 
young people especially have no real sense of of the scale of the audience they're addressing. Maybe they'll post something and it'll get zero attention, which they also hate. <laughs> but also it could, you know, get them in huge trouble and be all over, you know, be seen by millions. So there's this inability that we have now, which I think is really new to uh, modulate how much of our private reality is becoming public. It's impossible to modulate to a degree, I think, Lawrence, because you can't countenance the the limitless variables of how what you say could be repurposed and reframed for a while i've been aware that even if i'm just doing a show in front of 50 or 60 people it could be filmed on a phone and like you know i might have to justify it beyond the the context for which it was intended this um but i'm interested too in this uh when you talk about selfies and how like uh, that the selfie is demanded of us that we evolve a new facial expression of an awareness of i'm doing this and this will be looked at in the (laughs) future yeah what do you think the what does that mean with the semiotics of that the new facial grammar what's being what's inferred in that yeah um yeah that selfie expression which is when you know, it's it's a solitary selfie where someone's taking it of themselves in their room or whatever. And there's this expression which has to be at once candid, this sort of pretense or performance of candor. But there's a look in the eye that is saying that knows this is for public consumption. So there's this mock naivety. I think that's the innocence of it. And that is uh, that's the semiotics of it rather. And I think that's the strange interplay between the private and the public now that you get this lone image of yourself but you're almost seeing yourself while you're taking it from the audience's point of view so you're anticipating the audience so you can't look natural you know in the 80s say if someone was taking a picture on holiday and it's just you in the shot you could sort of feign um ignorance and pretend oh, i've just been caught unawares as i stare over this bridge in portugal but um now with the selfie when you can even see the arm and the side of the shot and that stretching that stretching hand um there's no faking the fact that you're the director and the content of this of this object so that must exchange that must sort of change the look in the face and sort of the viewer subsequently you're the viewer as well as the director and the content and there is as you say a sort of an, an odd uh, intrinsic dance between states and frames required of us when we enter into that r- relationship when you said though Lawrence that it's like because the platforms that we put our social media content onto are commercial there is a a a component of commodification um isn't that and just an amplification of what's always or not always but has been happening for like a hundred years or whatever that that, everything is commodified and commercialized and purposed in a primarily in an economic way doesn't that suggest a kind of a deep and abiding philosophy that sort of slips into all of our transactions yeah well if you think about if you go back and look at how the sort of the internet was dreamed of in the 90s those that you sort of utopian view is john perry barlow who died quite recently i think he wrote a manifesto in 1996 sort of a uh, a call for an independent cyberspace and they called it cyberspace then but it was but his vision of it which was quite pervasive at the time was that this would be an alternative model of social organization where people could move he said without bodies we'd be beyond um local and governmental control we could go as we pleased our identities could be more mercurial and unfixed and we wouldn't be sort of regulated by the same old 
trappings of the hundred years of commodification capital sort of authoritarian governments and i mean as you rightly point out that hasn't been how it's gone just the same processes of the market of sensing an angle have just migrated online and that's seems to be now the only option you know when even say in the early 2000s there'd be blogs that wouldn't have been linked to any commercial concerns people would have these sort of little cottage sort of sites that you could go to and there wouldn't be this sense that you were entering into a shop but i think i mean whenever on facebook to an extent we're entering into a shop but may when we may not be making any money out of it but mark zuckerberg is so i think now the what what i really lament about the how the direction of social media has gone in the internet in general has been a loss of the common space like where is the village common there is no analog of that online everything now or where every you know the major social media platforms are all um corporate spaces and that isn't inevitable but it's not surprising that it's the case because it's a replication of what's occurred in physical space a sense of the erosion of public space of activity that is free from commercial intent it, so it's the template is pre-established and merely replicated that you know when you we consider our, the concerns around uh, sort of spying data capture manipulation of data and uh, as we've said corporatization and commercialization these are problems that exist more broadly socially yeah. and just can be observed as you say migrating into this yeah. new space well it's a source of power isn't it so the the ways in which people can aggregate or sort of gather attention around themselves now is the so-called influencers which i always think is a quite a cheerful slash sinister term you know i'm a social media influencer so they can they can um leverage their sort of hundred thousand followers or fewer to get sort of paid sponsorships for their posts and and, and enter into commercial partnerships with businesses so there is there there was clear commercial power in the attention that the internet was getting and the, the ability it has to sort of focus lots of eyeballs on one place as soon as you get that focusing of lots of eyeballs in one place then there's money in that so the commercial forces inevitably moved in and we just didn't have the political will or even the social ethics i think in place to resist it you know um there's a writer i really love called fran lebowitz a new york writer and commentator and she said at one point you never hear the word sell out anymore you know to be a sellout that's sort of a quite a retro term i don't know when it sort of went away but selling out isn't really in the in the discourse now you know that's seen as sort of a, an opportunity if you can make money online and to some extent with the erosion of sort of middle class businesses and you know it's harder to make money as a travel agent now because of the internet as a bookshop owner or a music industry person so it's un- not surprising people are finding these new ways to make money such as social media influencers do but it's still sort of slightly depressing that this is the option how then does this um your understanding of the new realities even if they conform to established patterns in terms of how power operates within these new territories how does that intersect with your more the more personal aspect of picnic comma lightning where you talk about grief and the uh, loss of your parents i'm sorry for the loss of your parents um like how how, how do those two realms interact right yeah so a big strand of the book sort of is a, a running theme is this memoir aspect where i talk about the deaths of both my parents and they happen when i was in my early 30s within about two years of each other so it's this sort of bamboozling um experience to say the least and uh and when i was yeah. why 
Well, I mean, I mean, you know, talk to me more about yeah. that. Um, well, it what what it does is that sort of s- bereavement. I mean, I'm not, I'm by no means alone in bereavement. But what how I found it was that it just reconfigures your impression of what a real person is. So this this link to reality was important for me in writing the book. But just staying with that idea of what is a real person once they've died, because it seemed to me that um, you've had this sort of lifelong conversation with someone going going in and out of your mind and sometimes in person and then when someone dies that becomes an entirely interior proposition and activity um and so death for me made me question you know what is a real person i can sort of anticipate what my mum's reaction to a sitcom would be if it's you know she may have been uh dead for six years and if you know grace and frankie come on comes on netflix i can sort of sense what she would think about it so to what extent is she really gone uh to what extent was she really here in the first place you know it made me question a lot of those things that that idea of presence and absence and i always felt that um i have a line in the book how for me death was like when you go to the hospital and you get a radioactive sort of iodine contrast that lets the the uh, radiographer see your organs more clearly it felt like death was this sort of injectable fluid into my own reality that sort of made it really high contrast and I could begin to think what was love what was missing someone what was having a relationship someone like what's it made of what's the stuff of it and if they can't physically be there how do you continue it and is it any less real or in some ways more real if they're solely in your minds so these were sort of unanswerable questions but it it, it was sort of orbiting around this idea of reality and what a real person was so when I wanted to do more cultural critical stuff about the nature of reality in the social media age I thought that would be a nice counterpoint uh, a personal and the political to maybe hopefully the ideas put in conversation with each other would create an energy that would release some new thoughts that I hadn't had if I'd just written a straight sort of cancer death memoir or a straight sort of social commentary yes because the loss of your parents and the loss of one's parents occupies a an interesting territory in that of course it's entirely mundane and conventional whilst being mind-warpingly tragic and unbearable and necessarily because of novelty, there's so much theory when we're talking about, well, what is the impact of us spending all our times in front, all our time in front of screens? And David Foster Wallace, I guess, you know, I don't how long is it, 10, 15 years since he died? Like he said, you know, um, in my theories that in 10 years we're going to spend increasing amounts of time staring at screens listening to people who don't love us and want yeah. to sell us <laughs> yeah. something. Yeah, and Prophetic. I think that's pretty right. Yeah. Um, and I suppose what the from as a reader of your book, the use of your grief and the loss of your parents provided a sort of an eerie and familiar landscape to house these ideas about what is reality. When you said about like that, there will now not be any more phone calls. You know, like and. Uh, like a mate of mine's mum died like a couple of weeks back. We went to the you know the funeral, and it was a really good funeral in that it was really sad, mm-hmm. and it was also really funny. Yeah, and it really did the job yeah. of catharsizing the sort of right 
Betty's dead then. We're going to have to process that. And the two sisters talked about their mother and were honourable and didn't yeah. dwell on, you know, like the complex, you know, like yeah. they afforded her the privilege, the right of being a, a real and total person, but they yeah. never went, they never dwelt on unnecessarily painful aspects of yeah. their relationship and stuff. Yeah. It, was, it was very, very beautiful. And I read a bit of your book to Sharon and because I suppose, you know, when I, I was very moved by that funeral, I've become a father and it's and this perhaps like an the inversion of death it has whilst not revealing as you said that a barium meal version of the, the injection that death gives what it feels like the becoming a parent has done for me is open new territories and expanses of sort of love or consciousness or awareness or something yeah. and now being confronted with death with that awareness was yeah. I'm not a person that used to ever cry in public or anything I was good at not doing that if that's the way to describe it but I cried at that funeral and I really felt it I was really pulled into it and I saw the function of that ritual and the necessity of that ceremony and the power of it and Gosh, when I think things like, well, may, maybe you never know a person. You only know the facet of the person that you interact with and they ultimately exist in your consciousness as a sort of a constellation of ideas and memories anyway. You know, there is still, is there, so, you know, do you feel having written this book, having explored these ideas, that you do deal with essence and objective external essence in your relationships? Um, I think for sure. I, I, I mean, it makes me realise sort of the beauty of how you do how we make, I mean, Virginia Woolf says we make each other up, we make ourselves up. And I think that's just part of the human process. And and, and the fact that we don't, that there isn't a stable uh, Betty that could be summed up, you know, I think that is the essence. The essence is that there isn't this sort of, um, sort of solid object that can, you can describe as though you were sort of, you know, you know, just a, a student having to describe something clearly like a bowl or a cup. You know, there's there's some sense of constant movement. And I think death just amplifies that. And maybe birth does as well. I haven't experienced that. But um, death certainly makes you realize that there's something um, mercurial and beautiful and unpindownable. I mean, we were talking about, you know, when I was writing about the the memoir and the death aspects, that was a sense for me in which the public and the private were quite... Um, there was quite a hard border between them because although I was writing really personal things, language couldn't capture the the the, the true experience of loss for me. And so th- there's times in the book where maybe the treatment of it can seem quite flippant or or sort of lighthearted or comical at the worst, the bleakest times, as you were saying, that funeral it had that mix of humor and sadness. But that's because I think our language has no real way of processing some of the the deep true realities of being physically separated from someone so yeah for me that was an interesting aspect of it too that maybe death is one place where we do have a full divide no one will ever fully know however i share stuff online or pictures of myself uh, at a funeral or whatever of people and people do do that sometimes and that's fair enough they'll never fully know what that loss was Although that bit we say about like there being a lavender bottle and like, you know, sort of an uh, like uh, uh, that bit when you said about the lavender bottle and like uh, clearly one of your parents had been in the front room. My mum's sort of hospital bed. Yeah, yeah, you said swan like. Yeah. And like that sort of, I suppose the most that can be achieved through language is that 
somehow embedded in an image is uh, a visceral or emotional truth yes yeah somehow fires yeah there has to be some sort of poetry and that's what became the real challenge for me because as a writer whatever you're doing you're always just trying to get it true as far as you can see it get anything true get the description of blueberries or grapes right they're sitting in front of me now that's why i'm using them as examples but um I felt that as hor- as horrific as these deaths were, you know, I was at the, I was at the deathbed, and that is an um, an irresistible topic for a writer after a while to think. Well, what was true about that, and what was not so much true about that for them, but what was true about my? What was I noticing at that time? What can the what can a son take to notice in these days while you know someone's dying? And it was sort of you know the empty lavender bottle, maybe, or the position of my mother's neck as she slept in the last few days you know and that was interesting to me like what can we handle what it hits me about it is that i feel that those of us that are perhaps of a hysterical or neurotic disposition that have analytical ever roaming minds you feel that amidst that carooming you will happen in an anticipatory fashion across truth so that even death yeah. won't get you yeah. like i'll be ready for that but suddenly some detail is imbued with yeah. some unimaginable pathos yeah yeah you are struck and it's what you're saying before it's the banality of it too, the mundanity in a way and how the that's sort of the cruel indifference of objects and it isn't even cruel that's the wrong word but just the stuff of the world that just sort of sits there while all this is happening just quietly and it doesn't have any meaning you know i remember i if my parents I, you know either one of them would be really sick in one room and i would go into another room and just sit down for a bit. And I would look at, say, you know, a bookcase and maybe there was some wrapping paper on top of it. And I thought, oh, yeah, there's the wrapping paper and it's sitting on the bookcase. And there was this strange quietude and indifference to the real world around me, which I found quite consoling. Other people sometimes, and especially if you read literature, they expect the objects of the world to sort of, you know, represent the death in the house or speak to you in some way. But it was the strange aloofness of the objects that for me struck me as, wow, this this is this is really here this was reality um and it was rendered true and vivid um by the horrors the the emotional horrors set against these everyday banalities yes because there is there are things that we will not be able to anticipate we will not be able to prepare for the way for which detail leaps out where the eyes are resting when you hear a particular piece of news when the stomach lurches and lunges as it does now what um the the when you're talking about objects as sort of like witnesses to an event and whether you sort of expect those objects to somehow reflect the tragedy or you as you said take comfort from the fact that they are um neutral yeah yeah. um it made me think when i was reading it about the idea of uh pantheonism the idea of divinity in all things a kind of but for, to me, that would mean that somehow the energy within objects is hmm, sacred or be revered. Funny enough, I've been watching that lady. I can't remember her name. She's called Marie. I think Marie. Kondo? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. And she talks about, yeah. like, doesn't she, yeah. like the power of these objects and yeah. she loves them. And I thought yeah. this is an interestingly spiritual approach to tidying a <laughs> house sure up. Decluttering. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. She, yeah, she says, doesn't she, that, um, you know, things should spark joy in you. The interaction with an object, if you pick it up, one of your belongings, if it doesn't spark joy, 
uh, get rid of it. She's become quite a divisive figure because some people really love clutter and also don't want to be sparked by everything they own. That seems an exhaustion. Oh, joy. Oh, no. Oh, yeah, God. Exactly. It would just be just this relentless... Uh, just stimulation so but no (laughs) no one needs that much joy continually sparking (laughs) through your life yeah exactly so i uh, she but she does yeah raise that point of this the communion that objects can have um and i think yeah death does reveal that the beautiful i mean i've noticed that since being a bereaved person that i get this sort of i do get slightly deranged euphoric joy about the existence of things like it could be a menu like if i go to canada sometimes and i see a laminated menu and i notice it because i'm not seeing it all the time because it's a canadian style of diner versus a london cafe so it's or cafe and um so i'm i'm noticing it because it's a bit different but then i'm just looking at this menu and thinking it's amazing this is all here you know it's wonderful and also if, you, <laughs> if you've been through the thing of being really worried about people for say a couple of years quite chronically as a carer you begin to just love moments where there's no sort of emotional demands on you. So it's not about it sparking joy. It's just the fact that it's there. It's like, this is great. Respite and relief. Yeah. Even how have these, uh, how have, how has this not led you to consider traditional spiritual beliefs as potentially containing within them deep truths? So you mean like, uh, for one example, organized religion, say, is that what you mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, my mum was a big uh, help with me in that to the extent that she grew up in Northern Ireland and um, and then moved to England and was in the convent Catholic system when she was very young. And she had a really brutalizing experience with Catholic nuns. You know, that was her experience. And so raising us, she was having nothing whatsoever to do with it. So I've, I've just been, you know, my growing up life has always been a very atheistic environment but it it didn't mean that it wasn't spiritual and it wasn't sort of aware of that there may be things going on beyond our knowledge and and where this really interests me is this idea of the stories you know what what stories do we use and give shape to these unfathomable spiritual things because there is there's clearly more to things than meets the eye you know it would be strange to say that this is all there is but how do we tell the story of it and i'm not convinced formalized religion is the thing because as you said it would be an odd coincidence if our capacity for knowledge was where the perimeters of knowledge were (laughs) yeah Yeah. our capacity for knowledge that's all of the knowledge (laughs) there is huge coincidence Uh, wow (laughs) so it's likely that there is more knowledge and Mm. given like much of what the reason it comes to me talking to you much of what i enjoy about your book is the way that's knocking against the known and the unknowable and the the limitations of sensory knowledge are sort of obvious we receive the world through five sensory portals each of those have their own limits but it would be ridiculous to think that the limits that we experience are the ultimate limits the fact that new realms are discovered even within our understanding of what is real like the even take a very parochial example like the emergence of a new expression as a selfie becomes uh, an accepted form of communication and how that is in itself a sort of an odd evolution of those early era uh, 
early uh, sepia images where yeah. people didn't know yeah. how, quite how to stand yeah. in, a, in a conventional photo yeah, where they sure. would have had to have stood for a minute. <laughs> it sort of feels like reality is in for unfolding through our consciousness. So I'm never, I'm not especially um, allied to any particular religious doctrine. More I am interested in where they appear to be referring to truths that we are all personally discovering that uh, that often exist at the limits of what can be scientifically explained and what the material world can encompass and what the rational mind can hold and i feel that the way that we have said you know there are limits in language there are limitations in thought there is something that's being sort of referred to something being offered just beyond the sort of confines and the, the, our, our capacity to understand that we nevertheless have to have a relationship with and it seems to me that you're talking about these relationships through death and through the emergence of an entirely new space and the likely influence of this new space. Yeah, and exactly that, that um, just living with these new technologies, these new digital technologies all the time, they are, as you say, producing new expressions in us, new sets of feelings, new combinations. So yeah, there is no fixed reality. It isn't a stable thing that we can study in a Petri dish and then say, well, that's 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 that all summed up. Um and and you're talking about, you know, what the limits of our senses are. I mean, the latest neuroscience is saying that really a lot of the times, you know, our, our, our sense of what reality is, the external world, is just a sort of a best guess of what our senses can <laughs> cobble together. And that there must be enough of a crossover that you and I aren't sitting in two completely different roomscapes and you don't think it's a tropical island and I don't think it's an alpine village and we're not going whoa <laughs> this doesn't match up at all get, <laughs> yeah. get that frog yeah. off me yeah we have no chemistry at all <laughs> um but yeah so there must be some uh, sensory crossover that isn't a complete free-for-all but we are sort of making things up and, and a neuroscientist called Anil Seth who I really like sort of describes it as um you know reality is our best sort of shared hallucination that's workable um now, going back to the idea of uh, the sort of the religions and the various doctrines that that world history has thrown up, one of the I think sort of through lines of them is that self consciousness isn't really the way to go if you want to push the boundaries of the unknown. Like the self tends to get in the way of these things, and so the more I speak about social media, that like, might be referred to as the ego in psychiatric terms. The ego, were, yes, exactly, for sure. Yeah, how do you get the ego? out of your sort of perception of things and to me one of my big problems with the social media revolution the way it's going is that it's really encouraging a self-consciousness in people and the instantaneous ability um to see ourselves you know i was really struck researching this book that the polaroid camera was invented in uh, 1948, I believe it's the first land camera. So I like that inversion of 48 and 1984. I thought that was <laughs> a spooky turn. But uh, the person who invented it invented it because his daughter wanted immediately to see the photograph that had just been taken. So there was a childish impatience which <laughs> pushed that on. And I see that now, you know, my nieces who, you know, at the time maybe were seven or so, as soon as a picture's taken of them, they can see it, you know. And I'm not convinced that that kind of self-reflection or self-consciousness is the is the best way to model personhood i think it could be a bit exhausting in the long run sometimes i film like mabel she's funny you know so she'll be doing some funny thing i film her 
and then like she watches it immediately after. I thought, well, what there must be this be? How is she understanding that? I mean, because yeah. I don't actually understand no. it. I still don't understand what's technologically happening. How no. that could be captured and rendered no. and reiterated. You know, I suppose just her reality will calcify around yeah. these, these norms. These new norms. Yeah. Yeah, and you're right. It's troubling. One thematic idea that occurs is that individualism materialism commodification consumerism they sort of all correlate around the bounds of the of like this is known i am me i feel my feelings i yeah. feel my fears i have my desires it's me that does that puking or whatever it is i'm up to <laughs> yeah not very frequently uh so like it's for me, in a sense. Gosh, don't wish to sound too grand, but a sort of a, a sort of a post enlightenment idea of rational materialism. If this is what we know. This is what we can prove. And for for me, this what you're saying is being um, reiterated and sort of solidified around sort of the individualism of like the social media age. Really, and 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 add that to the way that these spaces are becoming commercialized and commodified. Sort of really. Um, enhances and uh, exacerbates a, a trend towards ideas that are not good for us they are excluding a good deal of what it is to be human and the re so why i bang on lawrence about sort of spiritual ideas and it's interesting to see um that you know in that spirituality within atheism it's, it's a topic i'm interested in of course um I feel that where are we going to resource ideas from that can countenance, oppose, overthrow these these uh, tendencies that are so powerful that as soon as a new space emerges, it is able to implement and imprint its will on those new spaces. Yeah. yeah. Where else are we going to yeah. draw from? Yeah. Well, we have to be, we have to somehow become slippery to the seductions of it. You know, sort of there has to be some sort of Teflon in us in our ethics in our in, in but not just in our morals and our ethics but also our aesthetics like my big hope for say the next generation is that they'll find all of this slightly embarrassing what we've all been doing and i'm not distancing myself from this i'm an, an egomaniac as much as anyone else and i've crouched over various online metrics to see how things are doing and how amazon's looking and whatever all of that self-interest so i'm totally in on all of this but um the generation after may just look and think i can't believe there was that economy and that's how people were sort of presenting themselves there may be a slight distaste to it and it may be sort of a reversion to sort of a more of a slacker 90s pendulum swing which is more of a wanting out rather than this quite needy attention like maybe i'll get sponsored if i get enough followers maybe you know i'll you know starbucks will let me get free coffee or something if i mention them so that whole way of organizing may just go out of style uh, that's one thing but also i think just an awareness and just talking about um how we're thinking of our lives so i'm really interested in this idea of the story i don't know if you've come across this in your own um goings about but i've noticed that we're being encouraged to think of our lives as stories all the time so the the future of social and um, social media has been forecast that you know the instagram stories as little ephemeral sort of uh, clusters of of photos 
um, across all social media platforms. They're all called stories. People are saying that's the future of social media is in the story. We're always being asked now, you know, what is your story, you know, to engage online with some business? So, you know, a pizza company may say, tell us your stories, you know, in order to get our data. Like, I don't want to tell my story to a pizza company, you know. So, I, but also, and, and I, I, so for my generation, although I've had times of really loving Sex in the City, I thought it had some quite good style at times. Um, as a program, it really, uh, from people around 20, like I was when it was first out, it really solidified the idea that you were writing the story of your own life and that you were the hero of your own life. I think that's a horrible way to go about things. I'm not sure that thinking of yourself is in a is in a narrative, is life being a story is at all healthy because life reality doesn't resemble the dramatic um structure of stories at all it doesn't have the form of that it, you know stories are a necessary distillation of the diffuse phenomena that yeah. we encounter yeah. in life one of the things actually my mate Sharon said when I, we were talking about your book is like she said there was no massive moment of catharsis and resolution right. with her mother but they found better ways over time yeah right and I said yeah because and she said something like it wasn't like a film and I yeah. said yeah because a film is that a film is a distillation a film yeah. is to provide you with an emblem a yeah. symbol that we can moment Go, oh yeah it's a yeah. bit like that yeah. now like you know like see I'm in a sense conflicted Lawrence because I feel that people having a relationship to myth is yeah. a, an important thing of like well what is it like to be like you know obviously narrative appeals because we know two things we're going to be we're born and we're going to die yeah. so we yeah. know that there is like an apparent timeline mm -hmm. for an entropic entity <laughs> such as us yeah like, and so like so having ways of formulating that of making sense of that it seems to me uh, is important. But the uh, in a, a post-structuralist world, we have to consider that even things that we consider in essential, such as justice, yeah. such as truth, often are freighted with the yeah. intentions of the powerful. This is what the... Because it's not just your life should be a story, it's your life should be this type of story, yeah, yeah. and this is what a good story looks like, yeah. and this is how a good citizen behaves, yeah. and this is not a good citizen. Yeah. And I note the emergence of a sort of an, an... For me, at least, it seems that it's coming from liberalism, the place where freedom and love was and lack of judgment was supposed to come from, that these things seem now to be heavily imbued with judgment, boundaries, and not... I, I feel like what is it that's being nurtured here on whose behalf you know and so whilst i recognize that there is a significance and importance to myth i'm starting to think there's a lot of dubious stories out there that are lacking in real moral truth and i mean i teach um for half my living i teach literature and i you know i've been built and furnished by novels you know uh, em forces howard's end is sort of with me every day in some form and that's a narrative and i think of it i think of its scenes but I think the danger, and I, I love its living rooms. It's an amazing book just for the living rooms alone. The drawing rooms are great. But I think having one story is the problem or, or, or a single narrative that there should just be these fragments. We should just live among collisions of stories. They should spark again. We're sparking again, Russell. But we're, you know, stories just hitting each other off each other and, and nothing being this dogmatic set narrative. You know, and when we think of a traditional narrative, the sort of fixed characterizations, I think it's a bad idea for us to think of our characters as fixed because then we can't escape them. A big sort of misreading of Freud was that he was saying we have to sort of learn the narrative that suits us or sort of come to grips with the narrative that works for us. But, you know, people, scholars of Freud have said, you know, his whole thing was, you know, we have to get 
away from the stories that oppress us, the personal narratives that are oppressing us. Yes, I mean, on a personal level, I, I now when I, if I know a characteristic in myself that isn't pleasing, I think, well, do I, like if I feel like, oh, maybe you're a little too deferential when you meet people that you might find physically intimidating. Like I think, yeah, that's interesting that you do that. Don't do it anymore. Yeah. yeah. And, like, and then I say, oh, okay, I can alter that. Yeah. I can, or if I'm conscious, if I'm awake, I can interact with these ideas. But I wonder though, and like, God, and I didn't really consider that you were a lecturer in literature, but like there's surely like the function of the, 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 the stories that I'm imagining that you deal with is about a kind of self-betterment that you can't have a story where the protagonist is, you know, doesn't progress, Yeah, yeah, yeah. for example. Yeah. So like you're dealing surely with characters that are lacking something at the beginning or haven't realized yeah. something at the beginning yeah. of the story. And by the end, through events that it has been revealed that yeah. they can now deal with something that yeah. they couldn't. Now, that surely I would say that there's something essentially uh, valuable. But I think what the, what the best books are doing and the ones that last are the ones that allow the character to think they were this fixed thing. And then the quest is that they're sort of cracked open and they become this ambiguous thing this sort of um flickering presence give us a good example of a novel that does this then okay good um i think you're the english teacher (laughs) here we go i'm gonna mention um a good example of this is column to beans the master which is a novel about henry james so it's a fictional uh sort of interpretation of henry the late henry james's sort of career and life and that is all about his sort of purpose in this was to try and create a character who was ambiguous in all respects. You know, he seemed very sociable, yet he he was out every night, yet he loved to be alone. Um, he loved his family, yet he was always trying to get away from them. He was sort of masculine and feminine at the same time. There was nothing you could uh, pin down um, in him. And so the, the reader's experience isn't of someone on a quest who has... Um, sort of learn to learn the lesson at the top of the mountain it's the the lesson is that there is no fixed lesson to learn that we dwell in ambiguity and that isn't really a cop-out because i don't i think our entropic as you said default position is to move towards certainties and so the best art is something that allows us to shimmer and not to fix us with how many followers we have etc what do you mean by shimmer shimmer between possibilities um to know that we're not um nothing is everything is always sort of up to grabs to a certain extent within reason emotionally psychologically how how we respond to things as you were saying you know i don't have to you don't have to be deferential or sort of feeling maybe falsely deferential in certain situations you can think oh maybe i'll just not do that so that's where so the excitement of literature for me comes in is that is the ambiguity that's opened up and it's not a conclusion that ties everything up that's Sort of a um, a soap opera, maybe. Right, it's pat, it's trite. They're yeah. recognisable tropes that yeah. simplify life and our journeys without affording the complexity and nuance that yeah. any story worth understanding is gonna include. Dwell in ambiguity, contradiction. What does he learn then, Henry James? Uh, by the end of that thing. <laughs> oh well, he. Um... I don't think he's learning much. I'm not going to be so ambiguous. Yeah, he's... I'm committed now. I do like my family and I'm masculine. <laughs> the end. Yeah, he was probably too ambiguous for his own good, you know. Um, he, he, you know, couldn't make a decision maybe at all in terms of, of private life. I think it's not so much what he learns. He's sort of a, a, he's a vehicle through which the author is, is 
laying out a human life for us to look at as a mirror, but not as a role model, but just as to say, this is sort of what real people are like. And that's why we like the best literature, because the people seem real and people aren't pantomimes. People aren't um, these sort of, as you say, tropes. Like, obviously, one of the determining ideas of, say, Buddhism and Hinduism, for as much as I understand it, as if I have a comprehensive comprehensive knowledge of those two vast scholastic realms, uh, is that uh, that the self, there is no self. That that you it, there's a sort of a, a conglomeration of memory and drives and urges and um, when you said shimmering you meant in terms of vacillating yeah, but yeah. for me there's no ignoring the luminous quality yeah. of that word and yeah. that it's sort of emitting a, a, a kind of power and potency sure. in the continual possibility that I, exists. I think yeah, my shimmer has a bit of light in it too i would want a bit of luminosity in the <laughs> shimmer <laughs> you don't want some dull shimmer no that'd be the worst sucking light in <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> awful <laughs> nothing business. worse no we have a we have a nice light shimmer i think as humans yes yes so i suppose in a way it's irrelevant whether this is a particularly unique time or not because who's to say and perhaps such terminology is redundant when we're dealing with the infinite and the eternal anyway nevertheless we seem to be dealing with a lot of polarity and a lot of division and also with a kind of i would say sort of overt and aggressive imposition of narrative and stories and this is what america is and this is what britain is and this is what maleness is and this is what femaleness is what uh do you how do you feel the ideas that you're exploring in your book play out in culture at large? I know that's stuff you touch on explicitly in the book. But yeah, yeah. Um, there's so many contradictions now culturally. So on the one hand, we have, it feels like, you know, we can take a phone out of our pockets and tape what's just happened that's happening now in front of us. So there should be more certainty than ever. And yet, we live in an age of doubt, of doubting things. The first thing we ask now if we hear something or we read about it online it isn't, is that good or bad, right or wrong? Is is that true or not? So there's at the same time as we have these technologies which should allow this empiricism, you know, this concrete, data-driven, objective view of the world, we're, we, we're living in an age of huge sort of doubt and skepticism. So that tension's interesting. But one of the main sort of political angles of the book, I think, is this idea of obscenity, which I think is playing out in the in the political sphere. And what I mean by obscenity is there's a lovely, you know, people think this age is obscene because of all the internet porn. And the and obscene the word obscene is interesting because etymologists aren't quite sure what it means. They think it could have a Latin root, which is to do with feces and filth and muck and that's where we get our, our, our ideas our puritanical ideas that's obs, obscenum i'm not sure it's pronounced but it's obcanum or obscenum um, and that's linked to the idea of porn being obscene not that disgusting exactly right that's that sort of uh that the grotesque sort of carnal aspects of life but there's also a, a school of thought that thinks that we get the word obscene as a greek theater reference or, or direction meaning ob skenere i think uh ob space s-k-e-n-e which is essentially meaning off stage so when medea slaughters her children um or uh clytemnestra kills agamemnon in the in the tragedies that's happening off stage the murder is obscene and then they wheel on sort of the the bloody bodied afterwards for, for the audience to look at but the violence act is obscene 
So I was really interested in this idea of obscenity, the Greek sense, because for me now in politics, we've the the it, this is a totally obscene time in politics, from the point of view, especially in American politics and with Trump, that there is the off stage and the on stage are happening at the same time or in parallel. So remember before we would hear something had happened like JFK Jr.'s plane goes down in the 90s, Clinton comes soberly out and there's the lectern, you know, and he stands and makes the announcement then goes back in again. So there was this sort of stage. I don't know why I remember JFK Jr.'s um, poor, unfortunate demise more than anything else, but that sort of occurred to me. But um so we had this sort of separation where a politician could make a political statement and we all played along with the spectacle of that, that it was a stage, that, that this was a position of office through which the person is uttering certain things. But now, in especially in American politics, the it, we were always given the obscene view. We're given the behind the scenes, you know, Trump, the way Trump tweets things, the way he ran his campaign to say he was always calling attention to the spectacular quality of it. He was like, look at the cameras. The cameras never turn around and show how big my crowds are. He was obsessed with that. He was stage managing it all. But he wasn't just doing it sort of slyly. He was telling us it all. And his entire um, appeal was that he was he wasn't a politician so that he could just he, I'll tell you like how it really is. I'll tell you the behind the scenes stuff. And so there was brilliant irony when he was caught going to a behind-the-scenes um, uh, interview for his sort of role on a soap opera in the mid-2000s, I think I think it was Days of Our Lives, he was taped obscenely behind the scenes on the way to that interview, and that was the pussy-grabbing tape. And that's what then became part of his mainstream, sort of an element of his campaign. But I think this, now more and more, we're seeing people in the public eye, and especially politicians, who are sort of acknowledging that they have to say one thing politically while we have the 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 real so-called real behind the scenes view of it just to give a bit of a more concrete example which isn't political but it's in pop culture but i think they're blending together anyway mm. there was this trailer that i was watching um for a, a documentary about the department store tiffany's and uh the news anchor american news anchor katie couric was on and she was giving a bit being a bit of a talking head and the trailer for um the tiffany's documentary was her giving this part of it was her giving this really dreamy story of how people come to new york to find themselves and then eventually they make they were they make their way to tiffany's and then it cuts and she goes do i know how to give effing good sound bites or what and I thought it was brilliant because in the trailer they included both. They included her dreamy romance and her quite sort of humorous and lighthearted but slightly cynical, jaded response once the tape had stopped. And what struck me is what made the producers know that we'd be interested in having the fantasy, the, the public persona, which was in this case a bit sentimental and saccharine, sit alongside the behind the scenes sort of wisecrack and i think now we're, we're having to cultivate in 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 cultural life but political life especially this double vision where we can see the official address outside number 10 but then the also the sort of the obscene view theresa may's at, number 10 is actually a bit of a bad example because because theresa may could probably be afford to be a bit more obscene you know when when she, when she was asked in the campaign like what's the naughtiest thing you'd ever done right and she's so bad at that actually revealing the personal that she said the fields of wheat and it became just this hilarious meme that never dies. So she is actually an, quite an old school politician in that way and a real foil for Trump in that she is all quite um, uh, obscene in terms of she's... Uh, no, it's not that she's all quite obscene. She's all quite 
old school traditional, I'm performing this from the lectern. But the way American politics is going, it's it's utterly obscene. I think what is revealed by your Katie Couric, Tiffany documentary example is that the program makers recognize the viewer's assumption that there is a disingenuity in the version of events that television or the media is giving to the public. And they allude to this with the sort of postmodern reference that Katie Couric makes subsequently. And it is exactly this that Trump is able to tap into. And I would argue the truth that, you know, like he was saying, you can't trust the political establishment. They're lying to you. They're, uh, you know, I'm going to drain the swamp. Because he somehow proved some sort of ingenuity that might be as difficult to define as the talent of Van Gogh or Lionel Messi, he is able to do it in a way that seems sort of really real. You talk about him in the book as well as being kind of comic. And I agree with that. And that there's something that sort of, I've always thought that comedy uh, depends on the the comedian's ability to refer to a secondary reality that we all know is there, best exemplified by Tommy Cooper. I'm just trying to do this magic, but everything keeps going wrong. Like the comedy is about the veil. Comedy yeah. is about look, you're not really this. I'm not really that. None of us is. This is all falling apart. I don't yeah. know. The whole yeah. thing's falling apart yeah. around you. Yeah. And I feel that yes, that's been beautifully weaponized by the right and i think they have an the the right have an advantage in this way because it's you know, when i see sort of commentators going well why don't you have some refugees live in your house then like it's there is always exposure uh, possible if you're pretending to be more moral or more ethical than you are if you can't back yourself up if you can't be a prophet instead of a priest if you can't be the living embodiment of what you believe if you can't 100 i am this and it's almost like we're not being allowed to have roles anymore like this is the like when you talk about clinton like m m walking up to that podium it's like here is the role of the president <laughs> yeah yeah he is doing a presidential it, thing yeah and now that we're deconstructing these things around ourselves it's like well we know that he was getting blowjobs in the white house i mean like, yeah we know there was corruption and collusion yeah. and dishonesty and you know there and there always has been so it's curious to me lawrence because it seems that it's against my own sort of instincts and I don't see these as political instincts rather human ones like my longing for compassion and love to be the, the aspects of human nature around which we create systems <laughs> like that it, it surprises me that currently the people best able to utilize this idea that public life is dishonest, that public institutions can't be trusted, the media can't be trusted, the government can't be trusted, big business can't be trusted are the people that kind of require that dynamic. And yeah. I mean, it's a huge cynicism, isn't it? And it's a huge, there's a real, it's a really cynical form of comedy. And yeah, just going back to the Greeks really briefly, yeah, exactly how you described sort of the, the unveiling. In Greek tragedy, they would never refer to the conventions of the stage, but the, the Greek comedies were always... Um, uh, rendering obvious the the sort of the conventions and the staging they would always refer to it now. yeah right they, they tell you that we know this yeah. is not real yeah but that is like some that's analogous to reality itself yeah. isn't it like don't, don't you think that that's the potency of that is sourced from our awareness of hang on i'm not not even yeah. really be me maybe i'm not maybe i don't believe in this maybe i'll just go and live in uh, endorse it and become a jam maker yeah i don't know like in, when you wake up in the morning and you don't know who you 
you are. Yeah. You don't remember yourself yet or the person that you are in dreams. Yeah. And the fact that consciousness seems so mutable and so unknowable. So when when in comedy they refer to the structures of reality, yeah. it's like us saying, well, I don't know who I am. I don't know if this stuff is valid or real. Yeah, and you get a bit of a, a jolt of recognition and relief, don't you? It's like, oh, yeah, we, I don't have this pressure to think that this is how it is. That, 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 that's sort of the, there's this lovely mild form of hysteria that comedy allows is this venting of exactly as you describe yeah these structures are, are quite arbitrary yeah like the archness i think of sort of like excuse me english comedians like frankie howard or kenneth williams that sort of like they seem to be referring to like we know this is a bit of a game a bit of a sham or, uh, you know, like surrealist comedians like sort of Spike Milligan and Peter Sellers, that, that, that they can construct a reality that's ridiculous and absurd because which draws the, uh, you know, that draws our attention to the absurdity and ridiculousness of our own reality. But that sort of irony as well, which is the true comedy and is what is what you really cozy up to and love. Like Trump doesn't have that. His form is comic, but he is trying to unveil these certain things for pure power um in a power-hungry way and in a way that, you know, he's totally in the game. He's He has vested interests in us thinking all these things about the falsity of institutions. And really, you know, big business he believes in pretty firmly in the reality of that. He believes in the reality of money. Whereas, you know, th those comedians are basically, you know, they bring in everything and their irony encompasses everything. There's not really a huge agenda. And that's why they're the artists and uh, polit politicians such as Trump are just sort of hucksters. Yes, yes. So uh, to return to one of uh, the uh, my earlier points, Lawrence, I wonder how we can introduce, cultivate and share ideas that are antithetical to the current trends that, you know, across these interviews that I'm doing, there seems to be a kind of uh, a, 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 an agreement that, that, that some of the ideas that you explore in your book are like are correct that is we become more individualized we're becoming uh, oddly disconnected through our means of connection that our lives are becoming more commodified this loss of the private space is going to have a sort of an um create existential crisis in us we're going to lose ourselves in here what is the alternative is it some kind of retro like sort of some nostalgic return to craft <laughs> i know you're not on social media yourself and stuff mm. how do you personally deal with it yeah, um, I'm on Facebook, and I'm always and I'm always sort of slagging off Mark Zuckerberg in op-ed pieces when I can, and <laughs> sort of raising some of the hypocrisies of the whole platform. So I'm always on the verge of leaving, but never quite do. I like to keep one foot in social media to see what's going on. I'm not on Twitter. Um, do you know what I? Th there's a, a writer I love, uh, Toni Morrison, and I always think of something she says. She's she was talking about it in the context of racism, but she wanted to. She would sort of address in an interview she addressed um a racist person a you know a general figure of a racist and she just asked them you know what do you need this for mm. and i i think about that line all the time what do you need this for what do i need this for so when i'm getting caught up in a wall of sort of self-promotion and and feeling <sighs> uneasy and feeling too self-conscious and thinking oh, you know, I wrote this book, who's reading it, all of that stuff, uh, trying to seek some sort of public approval, um, which is sort of the extent of my social media interaction in the main. Um, I just think, what do you need this for? And I think that'll be a collective question to keep in our sights. And part of what we were talking about before, how do we, how do we change the paradigm so that we're not 
moving through these commercialized interfaces. There is There are ways of us, if there's political will, to have, say, why not have a state-run um social media platform option that was non that was paid for you know subsidized by the taxpayer that was like you know the old east coastline before virgin bought it you know (laughs) why can't we have that um where we're not constantly driving some traffic because that would change people sometimes forget they think this technology is just neutral and it's how we use it whether it's for good or for bad um but that's not quite true because the architecture of how these platform these social media platforms are devised um and designed are intended to elicit certain behaviors certain repetition compulsions in us they're designed to be addictive we know this so my state-sponsored east coast facebook wouldn't have any of that it would just have you know brilliant forums you know people i you know social media is amazing you know for togetherness for community of i have a friend who um a member of their families had a child with a certain disability and they've been able to go on but they use facebook for this but they go on forums and talk to other parents with this problem and it's that's created huge sucker for them and consolation but we don't need to have all the rest of that to have those types of online communities and this is sort of a blindness that happens that we think this is the only way that um, Instagram becomes to seem as natural as a meadow um, <laughs> and not there's there's other versions of it um, we're not going to go back into these sort of um, unless there's some huge apocalyptic catastrophe, which is possible. But um, we're not going to go back into these sort of um, dark ages, sort of isolated cells of community. Um, but there is a way that we could interact online, which isn't again, just it's commodified. It's, it's as simple as that. We have to decapitalize it. Yes. Decapitalize. That seems like an important word. But as we traversed through agriculture industry urbanization into a technological society and the sort of the augmented and virtual realities that we now uh, simultaneously uh, live within it, it seems to me that all the while there has been a continuum of the concentration of power this is what i think has been a, a, a recurring motif And it seems that the only way to oppose that to me is for people to have a, you know, like like you said, with the Toni Morrison, what do I, what do you need this for? What do I need this? So I I do ask that question of myself quite frequently. What is it we are trying to achieve with our, with our personal ambitions, with our willingness to work, with our willingness to not investigate who we really, if there were such a word, who we really are? You know, it feels to me that, a good because as we discussed earlier in this conversation there is an ambiguity to possibility there is there are constant options and alternatives that we are continually being guided in the direction of utility not our, not our own personal freedom but how we can become little cells of energy consumers commodities and commodified and the reason that I am infatuated with a spiritual ideology, not in particular the institutions that grow up from it, because for me they belong in a different paradigm with ways of organising people and controlling yeah. them, yeah. Uh, is that that when like that within sort of e.g. Buddhism, it talks about like beneath the construct of yourself there is a witness that is both everything and nothing, and if you have a relationship with that and look for that in other people, and that becomes the truest thing in your life, then you will be less malleable. You'll be less likely to, you know, all of those impulses that 
it feels to me like we have built our societies on some of the least pleasant aspects of our nature. And now there are so many possibilities within our nature. I'm greedy. I'm selfish. I've got lust in me, hypocrisy, deceit. And like, but on the days when I'm feeling like that, I'd like the external systems to guide me For away. Sure, we need regulation of our appetites. There's just no, we, we shouldn't be able to sort of um, uh, just run amok and sort of try and, and grab power and grab money from other people. There should be limits in place that stop us because you're right that there are human appetites that are very self-centered and non-communal as as much as there is love and sort of a community spirit. So, yeah, we need that kind of regulation. I think, yeah, the way, I mean, how I look at sort of social media and, and the internet in general is that wherever our ego is in it, that is the most seductive part and it's the most lucrative, potentially lucrative parts. And it's the parts that are worse for us. So for instance, like I love YouTube. I love being able to summon up interviews. I love being able to watch women's tennis matches from 1994. And I can remember some of the points, Russell, like I'm, I used to watch so much of it over and over again on my little tapes when I was a teenager because I was convinced I was going to be a pro. Um, <laughs> never panned out. But I can remember, I'll go and be, I'll look at like, Wimbledon 94 and Ratilova versus Martinez and I can sum that up on YouTube and that's a really enriching nice sort of um, way to spend your leisure time well in my case but so that's great and there's all sorts of ways in which we use the internet for knowledge etc but it's the ego involvement that is to me it's clearly not the best way to go but that's what so much of of the power lies around that, that we're always being drawn back into that again. I think, you know, virtual reality could be a great tool for all sorts of reasons for rehabilitating um, people with PTSD or various disabilities. So you can't knock that, but it's when we're asked, as you say, to solidify as ourselves online. Like we've moved from the possibility of being amb ambiguous and shimmering to being this sort of stabilized, um, ossified thing. And there's a great example that now, um, we're talking about social media influencers. Late last year, hackers have started stealing uh, influencers' public profiles and locking them out and demanding ransom for them. So this is the new sort of highway robbery, you know, that your money or your virtual life. I mean, I'm really <laughs> fascinated by that new twist on an old crime because that is th there is something to steal. There is a little entity of commercial value. It's a little mini economy because they don't just steal the person they steal their audience that they've maybe spent 12 months um, accruing. So, but they think that they themselves, in a way, the influencers feel rightly so violated by this hacking. And they feel that they've been taken, that they've referred to, I've listened to interviews with some of them, they'll say, you know, this is my life. But their life they're referring to as a little mini economic system of an audience and them. So it's this weird like mass hostage situation where only one person truly stands to lose. We're invited continually, though, to uh, reduce. Like when you talked about your unwillingness to commit to one mythic archetype, and that you enjoy the constant ambiguity and possibility for fluctuation and variation, it, it makes me think that we are, whether or not it's happening in the online world, where we can experience it and identify and diagnose it, it's happening perhaps less clearly in in or what we would call ordinary everyday life we're continually limiting ourselves we are there are like you know shadow lives unlived yeah you know the the decisions that we didn't make the aspects of ourselves that we don't explore like 
because I talk a lot about um, God, everything, but I talk a lot about sort of twelve step recovery from like addiction. What I say is like you know you need a program of recovery to replace the program that you already have. You have the program of your condition, your class, your gender, sex, whatever, uh, and the, your program is leading you to sort of substance misuse or whatever aspect of addiction it is. Like that, these codes run deep, and in the part of Picnic, Comma Lightning that I've just reading now where you talk about how language itself can be like a virus in the mind colonizing and delineating what's sayable what can be said what can you know like that language is in a sense owned we are even without the advent of a whole new virtual world that we can all access sort of online and online identities we are limited anyway by all technologies even if it's the technology of language yeah and, and um that's language and if you work with words all the time you feel this you feel how in some senses imperfect a fit language is for our experience so there's all and writers always talk about this i've heard countless novelists say you know you have the book in your head and the one on the page is always the slightly sorry substitute or proxy for the book in their head that the language can never reality can't be pushed through that mesh of language yeah. Um, perfectly and why you know it'd be like what you're saying about how if our knowledge was just the limit of things it's that same idea that it would be a huge coincidence if we could devise the perfect language to capture all of experience but I'm interested in, in how language is being policed now um, especially the idea of the private language I give a really sort of really macabre example of this where I um, I write about this in the book where Around the time that the actress Natasha Richardson tragically died in a skiing accident, my laptop also, not also, my laptop died. And um, and there was something about the circumstances which sounds really grotesque for me to even, and horrific for me to lay out. But I was reading the story of Natasha Richardson because it was so awful. And part one of the details was that she seemed to be okay. It seemed to be a minor fall. And then... Um, she got steadily worse because um, of a brain bleed and she deteriorated really quickly. But it was that moment of feeling okay for an hour and then suddenly not being okay had stuck with me because I'm a bit of a hypochondriac and morbid. So then when my laptop, I spilt tea on my laptop and um, it seemed fine for about an hour and then I was typing and then the typing went haywire. Now this happened at the time of Natasha Richardson's death. I didn't just sort of drag this back from two years prior. And I said to myself, oh, that's a bit like my laptop's a bit like Natasha Richardson. Now, um, if I was on Twitter and I'd happened to say that, mm. you know, can you imagine and if, if anyone cared and if I got the sort of any amount of backlash? But people would say, you know, how can you make a metaphor between your old laptop dying and this loss of human life? And that's why I really would never utter it to anyone except now on a podcast many years later. But I knew at the time, I'm like, I know the scope of what my language and my metaphor making is doing with this. And I know the moral limits of it. And I'm not saying they're identical. Um, and I'm not saying that one is as important as the other. That would be crazy. But now online, one of the biggest sort of missteps you can do is saying a bad metaphor where people are saying, you know, putting these two things a comparison will get you in trouble. So a minor example is the singer, the New Zealand singer Lord compared being friends with Taylor Swift to being like friends with someone with an autoimmune disease. And all she meant was you can't go to every restaurant with her because she yeah. might be allergic to it. But she got, you know, people are saying, how can you trivialize autoimmune diseases? But 
And there is a strange policing of language, which isn't the same as saying we shouldn't interrogate the sexist, misogynist, racist assumptions built into our current idiom. But that but at the same time, um, social media is a really hard place for other people to understand what you meant by something. So the metaphors that occur to us can are really quite intimate and maybe aren't for sharing because we're encouraged to sort of share everything. I could have easily just thought, oh, I'll put that down. That seems sort of a bit quirky. And then if I was a bit immature and younger, I would have suffered the consequences of that perhaps. So I'm really interested in the ways in which our intimate language, again, our private reality that runs through our heads, is a really bad fit for for social media to tweet it out there, you know? Sometimes it's... Um the very fact that it is bad taste that is the reason you're using it. Like when people allude to pedophilia or fascism or, you know, like it's, you would have to acknowledge that the severity of that thing in order to use it in your metaphor. So there is an acknowledgement. So I, I am beginning to sense that the patrolling is not coming from a moral and ethical place but from somewhere else like it doesn't seem like hey wait a second some sexism happened there we better get on that yeah it's more like oh here's the opportunity for me to say this thing that i like saying yeah like what there you know like now again this is one of the tropes of what we would conventionally and i'm starting to think that many of these uh partitions are dissolving the the, the, the right uh, like you know because the right now are the people that talk about free speech and the right to, to say certain things but can like for me it like as a person who experiences it sometimes because i say things in public i feel like that the I feel like there's a disingen- disingenuousness to the condemnation i feel that people don't even believe it anymore I feel like almost the sp- that people just want to feel the space. They just want to express these feelings that they have and that, that they don't, there's no actual, and I think this is what's causing this sort of, God, I'm going to say, sort of like this oddly atavistic, visceral and angry, urgent sort of, ah, my country, yeah. Because I think that there's there's been a dance for too long. In the last 20, 30 years, politically, the neoliberal establishment are banned. Like, the, the reason you're not the conservatives, the reason you're not the right, is because you're supposed to care about people, and in particular, people that are disadvantaged. And it seems that what we have witnessed is an evolution of those ideas, and so they only care about people where there is no consequence, yeah. where all that's required is to go, you shouldn't have said that, you yeah, yeah. shouldn't have said that, yeah. so there's no sacrifice, yeah. there's no what do you have to do then in order to be that type of activist do you need to turn up somewhere and do 10 hours work do you need to chop off a limb or is it you just need to say stuff yeah no and 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 this is sort of rich picking so people want to go down that activist route because the you know the form of social media its scales are so weird so a private casual passing thought that we put down has the heft of like one of the Ten Commandments, right? <laughs> so if enough people, uh, you know, share it around, so everyone is getting this sense of, you know, how dare you say that as though it was this well, you know, it's an edict, it's policy, um, and, and that is, I think, the trouble. It's a, it's a, it's a question of scale, and we're wow. not, and we're not quite, um, we haven't quite got the um, responses. I think that scale has been tilted so quickly that we're not, we haven't got the responses to understand what 
people meant and in context in some cases there is willful blindness so this is sort of a bully's excitement to leap on someone you know and you know in the schoolyard where you might say something that is obviously means something else but you know if you wrote it down it could mean this thing you know the bully will sense that angle uh, and there is that and uh, john ronson writes about that brilliantly and so you've been publicly shamed that sort of the titillation of of um excoriating people for language and again that isn't to say that i think a great one of the great benefits of social media is that people are becoming more aware of the hidden assumptions in their everyday speech which is alienating to some people and is disenfranchising so that's great all of that stuff should happen but yeah the the mobbishness um is somewhat unnecessary at times it's amazing to discover that it's uh, 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 amazing to discover uh, how language is freighted with assumption. Oh, the Middle East, <laughs> depending on where you're standing. You know, I'm fascinated when I, oh, yeah, right, God, yeah, I understand now how they and we and who gets to be they and who's we. And, you know, like it's, this is, as you say, it's exciting to investigate our idioms and what's concealed or revealed within them. But I, too, know that there are certain impulses within me where I sort of think, oh, brilliant, someone said something, and now I can do that thing. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, totally. There's a mechanism. I can legitimately unleash. I'm furious with the world. I'm brilliant. Now I get a chance to express that. Um, But what you say in your book about the increased textualization, and how does that connect to what you were just saying there about something you just sort of casually say, now if it's repeated enough can have the sort of weight of a commandment yeah for sure i think now we're forced to be you know i teach literature as i said and where uh, at new york university in london and also another university called university of north carolina in chapel hill in london so why are all these they're all in london i teach american students in london so they're all about the place and yeah there's little satellite campuses how's that happen they love coming abroad to london and studying Right, and that's yeah. what you teach them. So, yeah. Sorry, and then uh, talk about the textualization and the commandments. Yeah, so um, so I think that this younger generation are naturally literary critics, by which I mean they they understand the world as a text because and life is a text to be read and critiqued because so much of their lives are text-based. So they understand, you know, not just the written language, but the semiotics of things. They understand... Um, they're having to factor in uh, or read into their own relationships all the time. I often think that this generation younger than me has sort of like a set of codes and language that's like from a Jane Austen novel, you know, like the sort of the the gla- the play of glances and who's coming out at which ball and who dances with whom. That is all being transposed into the language of young people's interaction online. And they, ha- they have to be very wary of the codes and how they look at each other's how much you look at a stranger's profile or if you've just met them do you befriend them within three days so everything is becoming a text in a way that has to be read and Gosh, absorbed that's fantastic because i suppose yeah require new civilization new protocols required and i'd never thought of manners like that manners as, as a society becomes increasingly civilized the rules need to be described and enforced and imposed so that we know what they are and this is a kind of new civilization with new protocols and it was interesting isn't it because uh, you remember when people used to be oh no I don't think that text means this and yeah. that text but emojis yeah. emerged to provide a kind of <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so now yeah. it all seems when I like I thought 
I didn't used to use exclamation marks because I thought they were too pat and awful. <laughs> a piece of now, like it's hearts and rainbows yeah. and all sorts of stuff all over. And I'm a man in my forties, for God's sake. <laughs> Do you remember when it went from one kiss to two kisses? Wow. There was a moment around 2013. I think it went where one kiss was very generous and then all of a sudden if i gave <laughs> one kiss, kiss in a text it would this be like this kiss isn't capitalized yeah what the hell are you <laughs> offering know, me there I, I know it's a kick in the teeth <laughs> so i wonder if in like 20 years will this be like this barbed wire string of x's is what's required just running along the page otherwise it'll seem really cold when you send emails are you an Xer at the end yeah always and have been from the beginning and like even in sort of communication between heterosexual males and like if they like and i'm like no it's all right kissy it's okay yeah. it's safe here yeah. it's an actual kiss you're all right <laughs> you know and like and then like uh and then some people will never do it like yeah. no way yeah <laughs> like yeah. it's taboo <laughs> do you keep pressing on even if you're getting the cold ending it, sometimes it, lawrence it depends how confident i'm in that relationship i like to think no i'm pressing on mm. because my kiss was never meant to be <laughs> mm, was never, like smooching right up to him but sometimes i do feel a bit chastised yeah. if i don't get the kiss back i think well i'm not doing any more of those kisses i mean yeah. caught out there with the wandering ex <laughs> yeah, as if it was an unwelcome hand on the knee yeah well there, there you go you're you're scanning the etiquette the new etiquette you know the landscape of all these sort of minutiae which the generation below as i say are really attuned to all of that i did an interview uh, i don't read my impress anymore because wise why idea. would you you know and like um i did an interview and the person sort of asked me about being a father and sort of like i'm sort of unbelievably sort of as i've already indicated to you overwhelmed as anyone would be and sort of in love with my children and very sort of present and engaged i work a lot less i'm there all the time now like there were a few questions that the journalist asked once of i think about like have you ever been away from your children like no have you ever been left with your children for 24 hours the answer to that question is no but right and that's what gets printed right but neither have i been away from them for 24 hours neither has my wife been left on her own with them for 24 hours we live together as a family unit that's the way I like so and then sort of and I think elsewhere in it like you know I sort of in an attempt I suppose to be you know Trump like transparent I went god I don't think you know I don't do as much as my wife does you know there's, there's no way she does more stuff than me and I'm but I'm sort of very very present I'm playing all the time and like during the interview itself I started to feel like I was being evaluated judged actually and I think I made reference to it in the interview. So it feels like a probation interview was going on. And then so subsequently, the, the article was written and a bit of it was picked up about me sort of like, you know, nappies or whatever. But it seems to me an example of some of the things we've discussed here. Something that I was talking about, like, which is my private life. Like, it's not yeah. it's not a thing that I'm saying, and no one else should either, yeah, yeah. or and I'll kill the man who yeah, does otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And and what's one of the things that's curious is the advocate, like, I think it's, you know, from the angle from which I've been attacked is one of feminism. And my wife was quite upset by it because there's the inference that she is like some sort of downtrodden, sort of like sighing over a washing up bowl, type, which isn't the case. It's just like, this is how we live yeah. <laughs> like and it's how our lives was how like she said like well how how is this feminist to attack she, me for being how i am and did and, she recognize herself in the portrait that was being drawn of her implicitly by your comment no no because i've I, 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 because i don't you know because the, it was the positioning of the comment as opposed to the essence of like you know like we have been discussing it was in itself it was sort of flippant humorous i'm not only too sentimental about how in love with these kids i am you know because it's more kish or whatever and and 
but so what like we both sort of felt is attacked by like uh, something like and and also that what I feel like is the the very thing that the attack is being underwritten by a kind of what women's rights or you know like a uh, sexism or the, the 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 need to eradicate sexism and oppression in all its forms. It's like well how how is that just and legitimate in this instance? It doesn't refer to a culture. It refers to just a life that's happening between yeah. individuals in a household yeah there is a pressure now in which the particular has to represent all the time uh the particular life has to represent the general and that is sort of a, a, an ethical burden to put on and again you, yeah you weren't sort of um laying down an edict for how every sort of heterosexual relationship should run itself so i i noticed that with again returning to tennis serena williams she's always asked to represent everything um mm. uh, and there's benefits to that for her and for others and she is an inspirational role model and a great tennis player but she is you know everything she does is often read through vectors of uh gender and race and right. i think and i think that isn't always um Sometimes it is indicative of racism and sexism in a society, but it isn't always. So we just have to be really alert all the time that there's not very important narratives that are that we should keep our eye on, such as the oppression of um, women and, and ethnic minorities. But we can't lay this as an as a rigid template on everything. Yes, particularly if it's like that the, the goals are bogus, that that's this is more about the sort of the sturm and drang of the expression rather than an intention to create a more orderly, beneficial and kind society. You know, because if that is your intention, there are ways of doing that and they cost you a lot more than and, writing a column. And and also the uh, the economy of representation is a really tricky question because on the one hand, we shouldn't ask people to have to represent their whole sort of um, identity categories mm. ever because that's a dehumanizing thing. And yet representation is important at the same time. So we are in a really important Did phase. Did you watch the O.J. Simpson documentary? It covered this in a particularly interesting way because in O.J. Simpson's early career, when he was coming up as a college athlete, he was like an unbelievable footballer, incredible attention even before he turned pro. And it was around the time that those uh, black athletes did the salute yeah, uh, at yeah, the Olympics. Yeah, the take a knee. And Mohammed leagues makes incredible sacrifices and compromises for his beliefs and oj simpson said i don't believe in all that i just want to <laughs> i just yeah. want to crack on yeah. and being like a, and yeah. all, all of us even me as a sort of you know 30 years later white person in another country feel like oh no you should be yeah. doing but yeah. actually like who am i to impose on oj simpson what he should do with his life well, you know and i suppose yeah the end of the moral argument is oh you've been fated and you've come up from the you know he's from the project and stuff but like what if it's you know in a sense it undermines the comp the uh, sacrifice that muhammad ali and other you know black activists have made if it's mandatory if yeah. the people that don't do it are condemned that's the very that's the purpose of heroism sort of, of, of liberation yeah i think yeah those questions of identity are so tricky because there's a there's a, a queer theorist called judith butler who talks about the thing what she calls a necessary error so she's a lesbian um, but she wouldn't even like calling herself that but she says when it comes time for fighting for um, gay rights in the 90s say in america she goes and goes on the march and makes the placard and and performs the political role of a lesbian but she says it's a necessary error because 
Um, she doesn't believe that there is such a label to begin with, but there is a political impetus for the visibility and coherence around that label. So we're really screwed in many ways by this, the way our politics is arranged, that we have to don these positions in order to exact change. But then how do we regulate how any one particular human is being asked to carry the flag for various identity vectors. So yeah, identity politics is super tricky. It's one of the things that occurs is that because of the access to information, because of globalization, we are invited to participate in a you know participate in a social to what degree we do participate in it because how are you being english right now how yeah. am i being european right now in this room you know it's almost we're invited to participate in an, a narrative that yeah we sort of can't conceivably participate in it's too broad uh, yeah. now yeah it's a total fantasy i was thinking of that with brexit with you know why do i you know what is my image of europe um what was it? What was making it up as I was casting my vote to remain, you know, and, and and there's huge political reasons that I believe are valid. But at the same time, I haven't poured over all the legislature and all the economic consequences of being in, an, in, an, in the EU. You know, I'm not the ideal citizen. And part of what was causing my vote was just a sort of a fantasy of sort of, you know, being able to move to Berlin or something or, or being on a train across Europe that I've never even been on looking at the European fields and then I had a sense of kinship and so you know so I wonder what sort of fantasies and on the other side on the leave what what weird fantasies of sovereignty and and nostalgia perhaps as well as all the you know their own political arguments which I don't agree with but how much are we how much as citizens can we be asked to sort of make these decisions because we can't as you say engage meaningfully with the label of England or Englishness as a concept or European or European Europe or Europeanness as a concept so yeah we're being invited to participate in realities that we can't begin to understand over which there isn't even agreement on what those realities yeah, yeah. are it leads me to believe that devolution is ultimately what needs to happen politically uh, by which i mean that people the more power people have over the the action and governance of their community the better yeah. like to make it as small as possible you, you like, believe the local yeah i really do because i feel that it's inconceivable and there is so much yeah. there are so many ways as we've yeah. been discussing to be human and if there are some people who go we absolutely want to live like this i think mean, go on then yeah <laughs> like you know yeah. i don't think that you know sort of they, of course there seem to be god aren't there some golden rules like don't hurt other yeah. people don't make people do things they don't want to do they seem to be for you know things that surely we can all agree on and yeah. outside that like some yeah. people believe this some people believe you know like yeah. to corral us all into an increasingly <laughs> large space where we're all aware of one another now because of the yeah. Mir technological yeah, yeah. miracle yeah it's gonna create fractures I like the idea of like local governance with this sort of spirit of enforced hospitality that the EU has. So like it or not, there is a spirit of hospitality of free movement. So I like that idea of, of having control over, you know, the things that are closest to you and proximate to you. But this sense of any of welcoming and it's how that gets regulated, how you have local governance and the macro sense of hospitality and in you come human yes yes these are very basic values that it would be a shame to lose lawrence we've been in here quite a long time yeah. now talking about these things and it's probably well someone came some i get signs held up to me you know i had a bang on some sort of 
Yeah, the bang is when it's like, you know, because this is an audio medium. Once people are starting to challenge that, (laughs) that's one step of revolution. Very much. I mean, what's next? We're dragged Mm. out, shot on the street (laughs) for the crime of being whoever the hell it is we think we are. Yeah, well, you know, it's not a bad way to go. (laughs) It's what we would have wanted. (laughs) Yeah, it's what I always hope. (laughs) Lawrence, thank you very much. Thank you. Hey, I hope you enjoyed that. I really loved speaking with Lawrence. He was a beautiful and illuminating man and I can only imagine a wonderful teacher for those Americans inexplicably in London getting a good brain full of Lawrence's warmth. Uh, We've got some good guests coming up. Fern Cotton's coming on, John Ronson, Johan Hari. If you want to go and look at our back catalogue, look at it. There's Darren McGarvey in it, Candice Owens, David Rudolph, Marianne Williamson, Tony Robbins. I mean, so many fascinating and peculiar people to listen to. Please subscribe and share it. And if you want to watch this stuff unfold and see me and some of the expressions I do and how intensely I stare at people while they talk, you can have a look at us on YouTube and subscribe to that as well. Uh, all right, well, get that book, Mentors, if you want it. It's on, you know, russellbrand.com and Amazon, obviously. And check out my Netflix comedy special, Rebirth. You'll enjoy that as well. Thanks for staying with us. We love you. Bye. <laughs>